This is Guns and Butter. So what is the government doing by handing a bailout money to the banks? They are in effect financing their own indebtedness. They are financing their own indebtedness. They are giving money to the banks and the banks are lending the money to the government so that the government can pay the bailout. That is what is happening, okay? It's an, ab- it's an absolutely circular process. And what does it do? I'll discuss it a little bit later on. It leads to an absolute spiraling of the public debt, something which nobody has actually dared to talk about. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosadovsky. Today's show, The Global Financial Crisis. Michelle Chosadovsky is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty. War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. On January 14, 2009, Michel Chosadovsky gave a lecture in Montreal, Quebec, on the global financial crisis, the Great Depression of the 21st century. He discusses the causes and consequences of the financial meltdown, the speculative onslaught, financial fraud, and the bank bailouts, the impacts on employment, wages, and social services, the economic crisis and its relationship to the Middle East war, the centralization of corporate power, the concentration of wealth, and the globalization of poverty. Michel Chosadovsky. It's certainly a very cold night, so that the financial crisis must have been quite serious for people to take time to brave the 22 below zero and uh, come to listen to a presentation on on the economic crisis. Um, We are, I think, at the juncture of the most serious crisis in modern history. Uh, This is not strictly a financial crisis. It's a much broader transformation It is not strictly limited to to economic uh, collapse. When we planned this event um, back in the month of November, we had not anticipated the events in Gaza and the devastation which has resulted from the Israeli-sponsored invasion. I think it should be understood that the war in the Middle East and the financial crisis are intimately related. Why? Because fundamentally we're dealing with the same political and economic actors. Uh, The war in the Middle East is a war of economic conquest. It's a war which purports to gain control over 60% of the global reserves of oil and natural gas. It's worth noting that Gaza is also a major energy economy, although it's not widely known, but the coast of Gaza has significant reserves of natural gas. And one of the objectives of this invasion is to gain 
control over the gas reserves which, from a legal standpoint, uh, belong to the Palestinians and upheld, incidentally, by the Israeli Supreme Court. So that that invasion has also a geopolitical intent to it, and it's part of a broader conflict. I mention this because I, I, I think that despite the fact that we're focusing today on financial issues, we should understand what we're dealing with in a broader sense. That war and globalization are intimately related. The military roadmap is to, is to support an economic agenda. It's worth noting now, and that's not something which is, uh, is trivial, is that some of the financial actors are in fact also involved in Israeli politics, such as Stanley Fisher, former vice deputy managing director of the, of the International Monetary Fund, has become, has become governor of the Bank of Israel. Uh, what I'm suggesting here is that there are a number of major economic actors, they're corporate actors, uh, broadly speaking, we're dealing with Wall Street and a financial establishment which in recent years has developed a whole gamut of new financial instruments, what we normally refer to as derivative trade. We have the oil conglomerates. We invariably describe these oil conglomerates as the Anglo-American oil giants. They are, in effect, Anglo-American because British Petroleum which is the world's largest oil company, in effect is no longer British, it's Anglo-American. It's owned by both British and American capital. It is based on the integration of British Petroleum with the American oil company and with Atlantic Richfield Corporation. Broadly speaking, the oil companies, Wall Street, the military-industrial complex, the large um, so-called defense contractors in the United States, there are five major defense contractors, which are Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grinman, Raytheon, General Dynamics, and Boeing. And to that you add British Aerospace Systems Corporation. Uh, it's the heavyweight of the British military-industrial complex. And again, we're talking about an Anglo-American alliance in, in the defense industry, namely British Aerospace, in fact, has the same rights as the Big Five as, as far as tendering for DOD, Department of Defense contracts. Uh, we have the biotech conglomerates, very important because they own the intellectual property rights over genetic material, um, the whole discussion on genetically modified seeds is part of that uh, understanding. They are integrated with the defense establishment because they produce biological and chemical weapons on contract to the Department of Defense. And um, finally, we have uh, the media conglomerates, uh, the media communications conglomerates, which are very important in uh, framing our understanding of what actually is happening. And in this regard, the media have a tendency both to trivialize and distort the 
mechanisms underlying this financial crisis in the same way as they distort our understanding of what's happening in the Middle East. And they have a way of turning realities upside down. I think recent events in Gaza uh, corroborate that understanding that, that the, the victims are the aggressors and the <coughs> aggressors are the victims. And in financial matters, they have ways of presenting the financial institutions, the big banks, as being, in fact, the victims, when, in fact, the victims is the broader public, the people who, whose savings have been uh, confiscated through devious financial mechanisms, and where, ultimately, we are given, I mean, if we look at the various assessments of this crisis by the conference board, by the Ministry of Finance, by the think tanks, not to mention the economics profession, we have a very graphic understanding of, of what, what is actually happening. There's an economic movement, a downturn, and inevitably we're going to go up again. Okay? That's called the theory of the business cycle. It doesn't work that way. Uh, it doesn't work that way, and there's nothing spontaneous in these movements. The movements on the stock market, on the money markets, are heavily manipulated, and they are manipulated uh, largely as a result of what we what we understand as derivative trade. It's the it's the capability that these financial institutions, as well as powerful individuals or um, institutions which are not necessarily visible within the financial architecture, such such as the hedge funds to uh, trigger uh, upward and downward movements in a speculative onslaught where they can, they can speculate in an upward movement and then they can speculate in the downward movement. They know when the turning point is going to occur because they have the foresight, the knowledge, as well as the ability to, to trigger major shifts in direction. Uh, if you follow the currency markets in the last few weeks, where you see the Canadian dollar going, uh, going up and down. It's, uh, incidentally, it's going down today. It's at 124 Canadian dollars to the, to the US dollar. And last week, it was 118 or 119. There's absolutely no logic, economic logic, to these short-term swings. They are speculative movements. And there's, there's money to be made, as I said. Often, we talk about short-selling. Uh, these are operations which don't necessarily correspond to an actual transaction. You can make the stock market go up and down without necessarily buying or selling. And, uh, of course, disinformation concerning financial movements, which is then inserted into, into the circuit of financial and economic news, uh, has the ability of triggering, of course, uh, major collapses uh, and... Uh, let us be under no illusion, there are powerful interests behind this process and there are powerful interests behind the movement of these financial indicators. Uh, I recall that um, when the fate of General Motors was being discussed over the last few months, um, the value of General Motors was collapsing and the value of General Motors was collapsing because Deutsche Bank um, which is part of the speculative cabal, had made a statement to the effect 
that we put a zero price on the shares of General Motors, okay? So what happens then, coupled with, a, with a speculative uh, backing to that assessment, the stock values of General Motors collapses. Whether, whether the company is doing well or not is not the issue. The issue is that the collapse of a company, a troubled company, can occur, but you can also trigger the, the, the collapse of any other company, which uh, happens to be the object of these, of these speculative attacks. So we must understand that the types of instruments which have been concocted uh, broadly in the last, I would say, certainly within the last 10 to 15 years, uh, but more significantly since the enactment of the Financial Services Modernization Act in 1999, which in a sense deregulated the financial architecture, but this has created a new environment. Uh, well, I'll, I'll discuss a little bit the history of this, but uh, again, we have to understand that it is the regulatory environment which creates, it's the policy environment which creates the crisis. The crisis is not the result of some spontaneous movement in market values. It's not the interplay of market values. It's a highly manipulated market. Uh, but nonetheless, if we're talking about the real economy, well, the real economy has been in crisis for quite a number of years, and uh, this symbiotic relationship between the real economy and the, and the financial economy is, of course, fundamental because the financial economy, in a sense, has the ability to, to trigger the bankruptcy of uh, real economy companies, to trigger plant closures and so on, uh, through various mechanisms, which I mentioned, the fact that they can push stocks up and down at will, the value of the stocks, but they can also paralyze the channels of credit, and that's what's happening now. They totally escape regulation. Uh, there used to be, in a foregone era, uh, a framework where even energy prices were controlled, okay? You'd go to the gas station and the price was always the same, irrespective of variations. We had fixed exchange rates, if we go back further in history, to the 1970s, 60s and 70s. But ultimately what prevails uh, is the laws of the jungle. Uh, the price of gasoline can go up to $1.60 and then down to $0.70. Cents. And the financial analysts will, will lie through their teeth because they will tell you, well, it's due to the, in California, there's been a storm there, and, and now the demand for energy has gone up. Absolute nonsense. This is a speculative movement on the London, New York, and Chicago energy markets. The major actors are British Petroleum, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and a couple of French financial institutions, and they, they push the price up, they speculate in the energy market, and then they push it down. There is absolutely no bearing to cost of production because the cost of, of a barrel of oil in Saudi Arabia is $1.50 and the cost of a barrel of oil in, in Iran or Iraq is something like $5 a barrel and then it might go up to $30 in the tar sands of, of Alberta. But again, we're very far from the structure of, of international oil prices during this, this boom period. And so we have to understand how this market is manipulated, and what it does, it creates a, a, an enormous distance between the costs of producing a commodity and the actual 
price of the commodity. And that's not only uh, an issue in the oil markets, it's practically an issue in every single commodity you purchase. Okay? It's in the very nature of this economic system. And I can tell you that virtually everything you're wearing there uh, costs approximately 10% of the price that you actually bought it for. Okay? Because there's a markup of approximately 90 to 95% on all manufactured goods which are produced in China. And now the conference board has said that the GDP of Canada will go down by so much and the GDP of this, that, and other will go up. But bear in mind that these figures are totally meaningless because each time you import commodities from China, the GDP goes up. And the production doesn't occur here, it occurs over there. Okay? And it's a very simple, it's part of the ABC of, of national accounts that, that we teach at the university. It's based on the concept of value added. You buy at a dollar, you sell at $10, and there's an increase in GDP of $9. And then they'll say, oh, our economy is booming. Okay? <laughs> the U.S. economy has been functioning on that basis, import-led development for several decades now, uh, so that we have, indeed, the real economy is absolutely shattered. Okay? And it is sustained by, by cheap labor imports from countries where wages are at a dollar a day, it's predicated on compressing the purchasing power of working people both in the developed and the developing countries, which inevitably backlashes on production eventually by constraining society's capacity to consume. Inevitably, you lead, uh, you lead the economy into a depression. But the whole logic of this is one of, a, of an economic system which has unlimited capacity to produce, given its technological base, its, its industrial capacity, and so on. But the very process of increasing production using abysmally cheap labor limits society's capacity to, to consume, so that we are in a framework of bankruptcy, layoffs, unemployment, which then in turn backlash again on the development of the economic System. You're listening to economist and author Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Global Financial Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, I think we have to understand that this financial crisis of the last, uh, well, it's the last few months, but it's been ongoing for quite, quite some time now, at least a year and a half, what we're dealing with is a massive transfer of wealth resulting from speculative trade, okay? from manipulation of stock markets, money markets, currency markets, uh, namely the large financial institutions appropriate wealth through these speculative through the use of these speculative instruments, through highly leveraged operations via the hedge funds. And uh, the transfer of wealth is essentially out of the pockets of people's lifelong savings. I think that is very well understood that, that anybody, let's say in our age bracket, if they put their money in the stock market, they've lost at least 50, 60% of what they had saved, okay? 
and, and that goes also for the pension funds, which are dilapidated because all those pension funds were invested uh, in the stock market and some of them were invested in the hedge funds and so on. So in, in some cases, people's savings have crumbled by 60 to 80 percent. Okay? So think of all the middle class doctors and lawyers and so on. Um, it's the middle class. People, lower income people are indebted. Well, their situation is, is, is even more dramatic because they are heavily indebted to financial institutions via credit card debt, uh, problems of foreclosure of uh, homes and so on, people losing their jobs. And in fact, what we are seeing is a cumulative process. It's not immediately visible. I mean, the thing is you read about it because these closures are always uh, in a particular region, in a particular city, uh, so they, they will announce, they will say, today General Motors has announced that it's closing its plants, etc. And then the following day, it's another company. That's not a recent phenomenon. It's been going on for at least 10 years, this process of plant closure. But it has accelerated in the last year or so. And it's likely to accelerate even more because of the, the situation in the credit market and the power that these financial institutions now have over the real economy. They have accumulated vast amounts of private wealth, which they are now in a position to use. It's paper wealth. It's not necessarily ownership of productive capital. They own productive capital as well. But they have a lot of surplus money wealth. And what are they going to do when this whole recession bottoms out? They're going to go shopping and they're going to pick up large corporations at rock-bottom <clears throat> prices. Um, we have already gone through the phase of destruction of small and medium-sized enterprises, but now we are in a new phase whereby large financial institutions, powerful individuals like Warren Buffett, are going after corporations. That's the real wealth of the economy. It's productive capital. It's the ownership of productive capital. And what do they do? They, they just take out their checkbook and write a million-dollar check. And since they control money creation, they don't necessarily need to worry about uh, where the money comes from. Uh, so that uh, essentially we are in that kind of process. It's, it's a financial economic warfare against uh, workers and um, workers, consumers, people who save, people who are retired, on the one hand, but it's also a conflict within the capitalist system. It's the confrontation of finance capital and, and real economy capital. It's also a struggle between competing financial conglomerates. We saw the fate of, of Citigroup. Citigroup used to be the largest financial institution. It's collapsed. It's, it's going to be eaten up or taken over by some other company or some other financial institution. So that we're dealing with a very major transformation in the structure and architecture of the financial system. And what has been put forth are these bailouts. Now I'll discuss them a little bit later on, but I, I would like to say at the outset is that the bailouts 
do not constitute a solution to the crisis. Quite the opposite, the bailouts are the cause of the crisis. Because in effect, what they do is to contribute to an even greater uh, concentration and centralization of financial wealth in the hands of, of, a, of very few financial institutions. This is money which the government, the U.S. Treasury, but also our own Minister of Finance, they allocate this money to troubled financial institutions, but in effect these are the major financial institutions in the United States under the so-called Troubled Assets Relief Program. But in, in fact, that's a much broader project. And in effect, what happens is that this money is then used to consolidate these institutions. In fact, they use them to buy up other banks. Okay? So that you have a situation where the, where the U.S. Treasury is handing money to the banks, and then the banks are using that money to enrich themselves. And then, and that's another aspect, because these banks are also the creditors of the government. So they say, okay, you give us, uh, well, the Troubled Assets Relief Program is $700 billion, okay? Okay, so $700 billion, where does it come from? It comes from the, from the Treasury. Now, if I say, okay, here is, uh, this is a $700 billion bailout to Bank America, okay? Now then Bank America says, well, hey, you guys, you, you've increased the public debt. And uh, then they send in Moody and Standard and Poor and say that the, the debt rating of the federal government has, has been affected, um, etc. And said, well, yes, but uh, what, what the hell? We, we are actually bailing you guys out. Um, so, um, so what happens is, no, but this is exactly, uh, you understand. We need to borrow the money we need to borrow the money from the banks, not all of the money, because you have government bonds and treasury bills are sold on the market. Only a portion is held by the banks, okay? The creditors are the public at large, the Chinese, the Japs, and so on. And then the banks will take on maybe 20%, but they are the brokers of that, of that public debt. Okay? They will sell the, the government bonds on the money markets. And so what is the government doing by handing a bailout money to the banks? They are, in effect, financing their own indebtedness. They are financing their own indebtedness. They are lending, they are giving money to the banks, and the banks are lending the money to the government so that the government can pay the bailout. That is what is happening. Okay? It's an, it's an absolutely circular process. And what does it do? I'll discuss it a little bit later on. It leads to an absolute spiraling of the public debt, something which nobody has actually dared to talk about. Um, and the Canadian situation is also extremely critical. Now, let, let's give a little bit of historical background to this discussion. Um, in the 1980s, following the collapse of the Britall Wood system of fixed exchange rate, that was in 1971, uh, we had the onslaught of what was called the Regan-Thatcher era. In Canada, it was the Mulroney era. God bless him. <laughs> but God bless the liberals as well, because they continued that and made it even worse. But... Um, 
what happened was an initial process of restructuring of the financial architecture. The people who were in charge of this process, it just so happens the people who were in charge of that at the time, or one of the individuals, uh, Mr. Volker, is now on the advisory board of Osama... I'm sorry, not... (laughs) (laughs) He's on the advisory board of Obama. uh, Barack Obama, yes. Yeah. Uh, So you, you must understand... That there again, there's a certain continuity from the the crisis, uh, from the the Reagan-Thatcher era, where you had Paul Volcker, who was in charge of the Federal Reserve, leading to significant hikes in interest rates. And then also we had a crisis in 1981, was the first major stock market crisis of the uh, post-war era. And this led up to uh, a major financial meltdown in 1987. That period, incidentally, and it's very important to to understand, was also characterized by the onslaught of what was called the debt crisis affecting developing countries, and the Reagan-Thatcher era on the one hand, and the the imposition of neoliberal reforms on developing countries, it was part of the same agenda. Perhaps it was double standards because the types of policies applied in developing countries was really the strong medicine. But in effect, that strong medicine is now being applied very much all around the world. There's much more of an integrated agenda. You're listening to economist and author Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Global Financial Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. But, um... To get back to the discussion of these reforms, because as a result of the debt crisis, which occurred with the collapse of commodity prices in the early 80s, the rise in interest rates, many of the developing countries, as well as the oil-producing economies, such as Mexico, were unable to service their debt, and there was a problem of debt overhang in relation to Western creditors, and it is at that point that... The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, intervened and essentially came to the so-called rescue of the developing countries. Now, the logic was very similar to what we did just a moment ago, but there was slightly different uh, logic. Uh, The countries are heavily indebted. They have billions of dollars of outstanding debt. Their debt servicing obligations uh, have to be paid to commercial banks as well as to the so-called Paris Club, which is the club of official uh, creditors, and they said, well, we don't have the money. And uh, the IMF then comes and says, well, there's no problem. We will lend you the money. And with the money that we lend you, you will pay us back. Okay? That is the very basic fundamental principle of usury. Okay, going back, well, going back in many centuries, it was the Catholic Church trying to outlaw, actually, the usura during the Venetian period. But that's another matter. But the whole principle of usury is that you, you lend the money, but what you do is you always establish certain conditions. And when the IMF goes into a developing country, they say, we're here to help you. Now, please take the money. Okay, but... There are certain conditions or conditionalities attached 
to the acceptance of this, it's called a quick dispersing loan, it's a structural adjustment loan, it is there to support policy changes. Okay, so that the creditors dictate ultimately what you have to do. So there's a hundred million dollars and um, you have an outstanding debt servicing obligation, I won't discuss the debt stock, of two hundred million dollars. Okay, uh, the conditions attached to this loan is that you close down your schools and your hospitals, implement drastic cuts in the budget deficit, privatize your telephone companies and infrastructure, etc., etc. In other words, that's the neoliberal packet of economic measures. And also you must abide uh, by the debt servicing obligations that you have to your international creditors, $200 million. So thank you very much. <laughs> he hands me back $100 million and you still owe me $100 million. So essentially what this money has done, it's a fictitious transaction. It triggers the debt, servant, the debt reimbursement process. We lend $100 million and we cash back $200 million, and in the process the debt goes up. Okay? And that is the whole idea. And when the debt goes up, the creditors have more and more power and authority to dictate uh, policy. And that mechanism is not only applied in developing countries, it, it characterizes essentially the whole context of the 1990s. So, again, uh, what occurred in the 1990s in, in Canada, in the United States, is in essence a replicate of these IMF reforms in a very different environment, but again, it's the, it's the sovereignty of the creditors over policy. It's the fact that financial institutions call the shots. Uh, they have tremendous power. In the United States, they buy up politicians. I mean, it's pretty obvious that, that all these people, all these politicians are figureheads, including, uh, sorry, Obama. <laughs> Osama is also a figurehead, but it's another matter. And, and, uh, and they dictate. Now, um, important events in the 90s, and, and that's why I say this, this depression it really starts in the 90s. It, it starts in the 80s, in, in essence. Uh, uh, in the 90s, it's the post-Cold War measures which are applied, uh, namely strong economic medicine in the former Soviet Union, in the Balkans, uh, in India, in the 1991 new economic policy. Very devastating reforms, uh, usually under the stewardship of the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, in the late 90s, 97, you have the Asian crisis. Uh, you also have a major financial collapse in the fall of 97. But the Asian crisis is somewhat different from previous financial uh, interventions because uh, it was triggered by speculative trade in the currency markets, by short-selling uh, of uh, currencies with a view to triggering the collapse of the Korean won, the Thai baht, and the Indonesian rupiah. It was a deliberate process using short selling, which is a derivative mechanism. It, it doesn't require actual 
transactions in, in the currency market because short selling is selling something you don't possess, okay? So I, I take out a whole bunch of Thai bots. I No, I don't do that. If I take out the Thai bots, I sell them, that's an actual transaction. No, what they do is they say, uh, we are selling Thai bots by the billions, okay? We don't have them, it doesn't matter. We're selling Thai bots by the billions, then the Thai bot collapses, and then when it collapses, and who buys a Thai bot? Only one institution buys a Thai bot, it's the Thai Central Bank, okay? And they exchange it for US dollars. When the contract comes to fruition, because you know it's a three-month or six-month contract, well, the Thai bot has collapsed, and what do the people who have, who have um, undertaken the short selling, they simply go into the spot market, buy the Thai bot, and then the, the contract is, uh, is completed. And in the process, they make a 50% profit on the collapse of a national currency. And that is what occurred, okay? And it, it was a deliberate process. It was preceded by mechanisms which obliged the country to deregulate the foreign exchange market. We had the same thing in 99 in Brazil, when the January 99, when the, it was Russia in 98, and then in, in the following year it was Brazil. And it was done exactly in the same way. And uh, in Brazil, what they did is the IMF said, we're going to give you a $42 billion loan to support your currency. And that's a fabulous thing to do, because what you do is you give them $42 billion, and then you impose a deregulated exchange market, so that in effect what you are doing is you're financing capital flight. Okay? It means that the country is obliged to exchange its money, to allow speculators to move back into dollars and take their money out, and it's financed by the $42 billion from the, from the IMF. So that all these measures ultimately were, were concocted to put the countries in, in a very fragile situation. It was a manipulated process. Alan Greenspan made a very famous speech in October of 97. I remember that speech. Um, and probably many people in this room remember, he said, he said, the American economy is very healthy, but we must beware of the Asian flu. <laughs> well, it wasn't exactly that, I'm paraphrasing, but he said that he introduced the process of infectious, infection, resulting from uh, economies which were unstable and and badly managed, and so on, okay? Now, it's interesting how, how disinformation evolves, because back in July of 97, everybody was saying how resilient, how efficient these Asian economies are, the Asian miracle. There was even a report of the World Bank that was called the Asian miracle, and how everybody should emulate these Asian economies. And then in September, October, I believe, Alan Greenspan says, oh no, the Asian flu is really the menace and we should make sure that these Asian countries, that their economies are so infected that they don't infect us because we are healthy. And then from one day to the next, all the financial analysts were talking about how economic infection spreads, you know, the virus spreads from one country to another. And I'm not kidding. Many of my colleagues then started submitting articles to learned journals on the process of economic infection and building mathematical models. And it was all fabricated by Alan Greenspan and then 
the whole propaganda apparatus of, of news, financial news, comes into play. The fact of the matter is, if you look at what happened in Korea in December 97, which is an absolute scandal whether whether the U.S. Embassy demands the firing of the finance minister because they, they want to implement certain protective measures in their foreign currency market. Well, they have 35,000 troops in Korea. They said, no, you fire the finance minister and then hire this other guy who is a former IMF World Bank official. And so they rush him off to Washington and then they come back with an agreement. And what happens is the whole money market collapses. And then they impose... They imposed, because this was their bailout of the Korean Central Bank, they imposed the actual takeover of the Korean economy. And they say, this is fabulous, because look, the Koreans are so fabulous, and they've got these high-tech uh, companies and, and hard workers and engineers and scientists, and we take it over. In fact, I tell you, it was taken over at a negative price. The Korean economy was was taken over and financed by <coughs> government grants on loan from the IMF. Okay, so they, they used money, they financed the foreign investors. So foreign investors can come in, take over the, the most profitable assets for a few hundred million dollars, and in return, they receive subsidies for several billion dollars to cover their the non-performing loans, etc. It was all manipulated, very carefully manipulated. I discussed that in one of the chapters of Globalization of Poverty, but the intrigues behind this and how these major financial institutions managed to ransack one of the most uh, advanced, technologically advanced economies in the world and buy out its capital and productive base, okay? Uh, it, it boggles the mind, but it happened, okay? And I, I mention this because that is, in a sense, the model uh, which is being envisaged for the North American economy, namely that the financial institutions want to buy out uh, the real economy with all its capabilities because the real economy is the real economy. These people have paper wealth. It's not acquired, I mean, it's not acquired through capital accumulation, the so-called you know, the definitions you might find uh, in, in uh, Marx or the classical economists where they say capitalism is the ownership of the means of production and we manage our factories and, mm -hmm. and exploit workers. They don't do that. They don't do that. They manipulate financial markets. They make speculative gains. And then they use those speculative gains to buy out real companies. Okay? That is what is, what is happening today. You're listening to economist and author Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Global Financial Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, this leads us up to, well, 1998, the ruble collapses. It's the same process uh, and uh, short selling of currencies, uh, speculative movement on the stock markets. And 99, it's Brazil. And in 99, uh, November 99, marks a very major turning point in the financial architecture through the adoption of what is called the Financial Services Modernization Act. The Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999 
which is, um, is actually, it was a Republican initiative, it was the Graham, Graham Leach Bliley, but it was essentially Graham, Phil Graham, Senator, Republican Senator, who pushed it through. But it was pushed through in the last year of the Clinton administration. One man who played a very key role in this uh, piece of legislation was Larry Summers. Okay? Now, uh, Larry Summers uh, actually was vice president of the, of the World Bank. No, he was chief economist. Yes, but that's, that, yes, that gives him the status of vice president. Chief economist at the World Bank, and he is appointed secretary of the treasury. Uh, he happens to be today the advisor, the White House economic advisor to Barack Obama. And consequently, those who have been appointed to advise or to set the architecture, the financial architecture under the, the Obama administration are the architects of this Financial Services Modernization Act, which essentially creates the environment which has triggered this crisis. Okay? And I'll, I'll say a few words about this Financial Services Modernization Act. But I want you to know that the people behind this piece of legislation are the people who are now in charge. So the people who are, who are the cause of the, of the crisis are now being brought back uh, as a solution to the crisis. Larry Summers was uh, Secretary of the Treasury at the time, and uh, the Financial Services Modernization Act repeals a major piece of legislation going back to the 1930s, which was under the Roosevelt administration, which is called the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933. Now, the Glass-Steagall Act was a response to the environment of speculation and manipulation and fraud, which led to the crash of Wall Street in 1929. And it essentially, it's not necessarily a revolution. You know, it's not a social revolution. It's, it's a reform policy of the banking and financial sectors, namely to keep the commercial banks on one end and the, the, the merchant banks and stock brokerage companies on the other and not allow them to coalesce so that you're keeping the speculators within the realm of stock markets, money markets, etc. And the commercial banks, their function is to lend money to the real economy. Now, what, what, uh, uh, what has happened with the Financial Services Modernization Act is the coalescence is an atmosphere of total deregulation where these financial institutions can merge. They already merged prior to the adoption of the act. It's not, not to say that we still had a very centralized banking system even in the mid-90s. But what they did is that they allowed the commercial banks and the stock brokerage firms to, to integrate. So it's no longer Chase Manhattan Bank. It's J.P. Morgan Chase, okay? And uh, it's the same thing uh, in Canada, we are in a sort of copy-and-paste type of mentality. So we, what do we do? We copy this legislation, but we do it in a roundabout way. We don't go through any kind of complex legislation. It's done without discussion. I don't think the Canada Bank Act was actually changed as a result, but from one day to the next, you see the merger of, of uh, stock brokerage firms and banks and insurance companies and accounting firms and eventually the health service providers, so that 
they called it the financial supermarket. Okay? In other words, you can go into a financial institution and you have so many different products. You can, you can borrow, you can speculate, you can buy an insurance contract on your home, uh, or you have various services which are provided, and it's globalized. So most Canadian financial institutions now have emulated this pattern, so that when you have that type of institution in a totally <coughs> unregulated environment, what do they do? They fold their, their contiguous hedge funds, they transfer money into the hedge funds, they move offshore. All these banks have, uh, and that's not something which is recent, they have their, their affiliates in the Cayman Islands, which is the fourth uh, largest banking financial center in the world, establishing financial entities such as the hedge funds which escape total regulation, which don't need to open their books. And on top of that, you have, and that's not recent either, you have an environment which favors money laundering. So uh, this brings us to the rescue operations. I'll discuss a little bit the rescue operation applied in the United States. These are the rescue operations which are intended to stabilize markets and restore financial stability. But these rescue operations are largely handouts to financial institutions. In the United States, the Troubled Assets Relief Program is of the order of $700 billion. But in effect, one has estimated that they are substantially larger than that. We're talking about something of the order of $8.5 trillion. Okay. But some of that is out of treasury, some of it is Federal Reserve. It's a complex menu of, of financial uh, injections, but uh, I think we must understand very clearly that this um, situation will lead or leads us into a, a spiraling public debt. And I'd like to, again, address that question. If you look at the U.S. situation, uh, in the United States, they had a debate in the U.S. Congress. I'm not apologizing for the U.S. Uh, political system, but they had the honesty of, a, you know, of a, a legislative debate. They passed a law. They had the Trouble Assets Relief Program, which is supported by a piece of legislation. First, they voted against it. Then they accepted it. Uh, and they actually publicized the amounts that were going to be handed to the banks, okay? It was on CNN, so you can't accuse them of, of misinformation or disinformation. And uh, the question is, uh, when you have troubled assets relief, 700 billion, uh, defense spending of the order of one trillion plus, interest payments on the national debt of the order of 400 billion, and the various other allocations handouts which are not as transparent as the top, the federal government of the United States admits that they're talking about something in excess of one trillion, but again, other estimates suggest that, that these bailouts, in effect, are in, in the order of several trillion dollars, not all of them going through Treasury. But uh, if you want to address the ones going through Treasury, you have to understand immediately that if you, you hand out the $700 billion to the Bank of America and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and so on, okay, you can look at the composition of where these, this money goes. This comes out of Treasury. 
it is a component of government spending, right? Now, if it's a component of government spending, there are two ways of financing it. One way is to uh, issue government bonds and treasury bills at 0% interest rate, okay? Virtually, that's what it is. Or the other way of, of funding it, and I'm talking about under the present setup, because you can't borrow from the Federal Reserve Bank. So that debt is held by the public. So you have to issue public debt to finance the handouts. And so essentially it means that the public debt is going to go up astronomically. Astronomically, unless, and, and that is the other scenario, unless you proceed with a massive slashing of all categories of public expenditure with the exception of defense, okay? Because that's a no-no. So I, I suspect that what we are going to have is a combination of a massive increase in the public debt due to the financing of the handouts, and, and as I said, that's only the tip of the iceberg, these 700 billion. And uh, again, it's going to trigger a major, uh, a major restructuring of every single category of expenditure. Well, in, in, in essence, in the United States, social programs are virtually already at, more or less at the bone, and there's not much to cut. Now, let me, let me just say one more thing. In all the media reports that you hear, they say, oh, the debts of the banks, etc. Nobody ever talks about who the creditors are. We don't know necessarily who the creditors are because it's a very deregulated network, okay? But there are people who hold those debts. People and institutions hold those debts. They are creditors. We're not going after the creditors. We're not trying to, to question the legitimacy of these creditors, but the debts don't occur simply like that. There is an interbank debt, but there are interbank creditors. Some of them may be the financial institutions, uh, which have made mass profits in the last few years. And then there are more shady institutions, such as these private hedge funds, which uh, also hold a lot of these debts. They'll never cash in on all of them because the derivative uh, exposure is in excess of 100 trillion. But what they will do is that they will use their position as creditors to buy up uh, the wealth, the productive wealth of the real economy. And that is where people like Warren Buffett will come in, he's the richest man on earth, and he'll buy up General Motors. He's already doing it. Okay? And the irony is that he, he goes through a Swiss company uh, specializing in, in uh, solar energy, who then acquires a stake in General Motors on his behalf. So it's all done in a very devious way. Uh, so again, and the, the impact, of course, the impact on employment, the impact on social services is uh, going to be absolutely devastating. And I think uh, we have to be uh, prepared to, to respond in a, in a meaningful way to this crisis. Uh, first of all, in an understanding of the crisis, but also in actions which ultimately lead to disarming, disarming well, Keynes used the term financial disarmament, which was really to disarm the speculative uh, apparatus. And, and, and there are certain measures which could be implemented very expediently, which at least would, would reverse the tide within the existing system. 
But the power configuration at this stage doesn't allow it for the reasons I, I, I mentioned right at the beginning. These are very powerful constellation of forces. They're embedded with the military, with the, uh, with the oil companies, and ultimately they also control the political apparatus uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your attention. <laughs> been listening to Michelle Chosarovsky. Today's show has been The Global Financial Crisis. Michelle Chosarovsky is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. The Center for Research on Globalization is an independent research and media group of writers, scholars, and activists. Chosarovsky is the author of The Globalization of Poverty, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. Visit the Center for Research on Globalization website at www.globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628 or email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divide we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace.